Because your family is a big deal. That's what God's called us to. Uh, you know, the Bible, we like to say it this way, the Bible begins with a marriage, and the Bible ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb. When the church is redeemed, and, and there's, there's coming a day, I don't know if it's that far away, but we're going to be glory. We get a glorified body. See, your spirit gets made brand new when you get saved. Anybody here been saved? You receive Christ? That's awesome. You got a miraculous brand new spirit. Brand new. Everybody say new. I mean, on the inside of you, you're wall to wall God. And cheeseburger, if you had that tonight. Uh, but, uh, but there's coming a day we get a, a glorified body. And I get abs back. It's going to be a wonderful thing. But, you know, and, and then the, the marriage supper, that's the time uh, when we, we reconnect or we connect with Jesus. It's like we're engaged in Him right now, right? So, so many things in the Bible are a picture of marriage. Uh, marriage is like you understand marriage. It's a foundation of everything. Uh, but then we'll be, our marriage will be consummated. And we get to see all these people that have gone to heaven before us. My dad's there. My grandpa's there, who was a song leader in the Baptist church and a really good man, but I don't remember him very well because he, he left when I was 10. I get to meet him, though, see him again. Isn't that good? It's going to be real. I remember one day my mom came. My dad passed away, and my mom came to us, and she said, well, I'm just, I'm just thinking about, I hope your dad's happy. <laughs> mom, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, I just I know how he is, and, and I'm just thinking, what, what's going on up there? Is he really enjoying himself? Mom, it's heaven. Come on. It's not, you're not thumping a harp on a cloud. No, it's going to be heaven, whatever. You know, I kind of believe we'll be doing uh, things we love to do here. Uh, I don't know if we'll shoot guns up there or not. I don't, I don't know. I don't know, okay? It's going to be good, and it's going to be wonderful, but... Uh, the Bible ends with this marriage, and then you know we 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 eat marriage supper. Amen. We eat. Yeah, right. Eating's good. Amen. Anybody like to eat more than yeah. once? Yeah. So you hang out and eat. It doesn't get any better than that, right? But in between the, the pages of the Bible, the marriage begins. The marriage is the story of this family. It's just a family story from the beginning to the end, which means uh, we're all related to each other. Amen. You have to like me. You're my brother and sister, right? And the, the family, if you read the Bible, you'll discover is very dysfunctional. <laughs> a lot of trouble. Crazy trouble. If there's craziness in your family, join the club. We all have it. <laughs> but God wants us, He wants to fix your family. He wants to help you work on your family. Could you bring that, that, uh, that product? Uh, I want to just mention a couple of things. And, you know, sometimes I kind of hesitate doing this because I think, thank you. I think, you know, well, I'm just talking about my product, trying to sell stuff. But one day the Lord dealt with me and he said, son, you're not selling refrigerators. He said, this will help people. This is ministry. There's only so much you can say in a meeting. But you can feed on, and, and we do this all the time, you can feed on the Word. We have so many great technologies now. You know, on your computer, on your iPad, I can go out and walk and do my exercise and put on my wireless headphones and listen to anybody preach. Uh, you know, YouTube and you, you find all this great stuff. But we have a lot of things on our table that will be a blessing to you. Devil Proof Your Family is a book we wrote a couple of years ago. Charisma House pub published it. And it's, it's the story of our life. And we talk about, you know, our marriage and principles from the Bible that we base our teaching on. Second half of the book is about raising kids. And we talk about some of our challenges. It's, you know, it's not all roses, okay? Um, some of the challenges we've had. I'll just tell you, Trudy and I preach on this stuff all the time. And we've been driving to the church to do a marriage seminar. And we have had a vehement disagreement. That's a good word. Vehement disagreement. That means it got hot <laughs> talking about how we're going to do this. Because it's just real life, right? Uh, so, but you need to feed on things that will help you. Uh, some of our CD sets, we've got one called Decoding. He said, she said, this is about how to have a good argument in your marriage. Don't look at me like that. You disagree from time to time. But you, you know, you don't want to, you need to learn how to, to, to use disagreement to, to better your communication skills. Uh, in fact, I'm going to give this away to somebody. Somebody, you, your spouse just driving you crazy. They, anybody, raise your hand up. Yes, ma'am, right there. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. He looks like such a nice guy. But anyway, that's for you guys. Okay. Uh, 
we got one here called, and I love this one. It's called Family Farm. And I got to be honest, I, sometimes I don't think people buy it because they don't understand how cool this is. We talk about seven principles that uh, I was raised on a farm. So some of these things I experienced uh, uh, that uh, uh, to build your family, your, your kids, raising, you know, your marriage. Uh, one of the things we talk about is, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things. Everybody has to work. Farming assignments. Because everybody in the family works on the farm. And uh, the kids and the mom and the dad. Uh, the seed that you sow is the only seed that will grow. Right. You know, you may have good intentions as a farmer. You may be a pretty good farmer. You may can plow good. But if you don't put some seed in the ground, nothing's going to come up. Right. you got to sow seed. And that's true in every area of your life. Not just your money. Money's true too. But also in your relationships. Um, let's see. Cultivating the soil. The heart to receive the seed. How to deal with storms, pests, and weeds. Trouble in the family. Irrigation. We talk about irrigation. That rain is essential. And if we're going to make it, we have to have the rain and the, and the power of the Holy Spirit to revive us, right? Would anybody like this? I'm going to give this away to somebody. Okay. Saw you first. All right. Um, this one's called Marriage on the Road of Life. And we use a, a long road trip in a car as a metaphor for building your marriage. Uh, like it's, life's like this. You get married and you're so excited and you're young, you know, or I don't know, maybe you're a little older, whatever. People get married. My mom recently remarried at 81 years old. My mom, after my dad passed away. And it's so weird because she called me up and told me she had a boyfriend. That's weird when your mother tells you. And, and so I'm thinking, I'm the oldest son, and I'm thinking, okay, well, I got to take care of mom, so I got to meet this guy. And I got to check him out, right? And he's 81 years old. And so it's real funny because when he came in the house, you could tell he was real nervous to meet me. And we sat down, and I checked out, well, what are your intentions? You know, and very weird. Uh, but here's what I didn't do. I didn't talk to him about sex. I wasn't going there. No. But uh, anyway, we, we do that. This is called marriage counseling in a box. Did you know that the wedding industry in America is a $50 billion uh, a year industry? According to experts, the average 200 guest wedding costs $22,000. More than 1 million copies of bridal magazines are sold each month that focus on wedding ceremonies, honeymoons, home furnishings, and people do all this stuff for the wedding. But 50% of the marriages don't make it past. Let's see. Help me out with this stat. Is it second year? That's like, how many, what's the percentage? I think it's like, I can't remember. But a lot of marriages don't make it to the second year. Uh, uh, the second year? I mean, you, you're just getting warmed up. Trudy and I have been married 47 years. I was seven when I married her. <laughs> But anyway, this is, this is a great primer if you uh, have been married for a while to listen to. This is also a great tool to give to your kids, uh, for them to listen to, to prepare them for the marriage. We talk about, you know, a lot of cool things. Uh, and also the ushers have some cards. Guys, are you back there? These little cards that uh, we want to give you if you'd like one. And you can go to our website. And you can download all sorts of, you say, Brother Ken, I don't have any money. We got free stuff for you, okay? Uh, hours of teaching. And, and this, you can get on our website and go to a particular place with the code there. Just raise your hand up if you want one. And if you don't want, want one, give them one anyway. Give it to somebody else. Because uh, it's free. Everybody say free. Free is good. So I talk about that because this will help you. You need to feed on truths that will help build your family. Your family is a foundation of, of life. And we're going to talk about that, touch on it a little bit tonight. I'm not going to get into a lot of marriage teaching. The Lord's led me a different direction tonight. But uh, you, you have to work on your foundation constantly, all right? Um, tonight, well, in fact, let's pray before we get into it, all right? Lord, we love you. We give you praise. Lord, we thank you for all you're doing in the earth. We thank you for what you're doing in, in our lives. Thank you for your grace, Lord. We're grateful. We give you praise. Praise empowers us. So, Lord, tonight we praise you. And we ask you for the leadership of the Holy Spirit as we've come to this great church. Long-time friends, partners. We've, we've gone through a lot of things in 30-plus years. And here we are. And we're still trucking, Lord. 
We're still serving you through the ups and the downs. And there's many people that I'm looking at tonight. I recognize they've been here. And Lord, help us tonight wherever we are, uh, new people, older people. Lord, may the Holy Spirit quicken everything that's done tonight. Use Trudy and I to be a blessing, we pray, and submit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's my title tonight. I want to talk to you, and this may be a little hard to understand in the beginning, but I want to talk to you about the legality of the battle. The legality of the battle. We're going to talk about trials. And uh, I just want to say about that, that I would love to tell you, if you're not saved, you don't know Jesus, I would love to tell you tonight that you need to come to Jesus, receive what He did for you by the cross. We sang about the blood tonight. And God died. Jesus died for your sins because He loved you. Isn't that awesome? And I want to encourage you to see that, but I would love to receive that. But I would love to tell you that if you did so, you would never have any more problems in life. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool if I could say that? Yeah, cool. I can't. Right. It don't work that way. Right. Everybody say, just don't. Yeah. Say it real loud, it just don't. Yeah. You know, uh, I know a, a pastor in the uh, uh, northwestern part of the country, and he gets a lot of people saved, and he gets a lot of street people saved. And they're coming to his church. So they get saved and, and they, he gets some water baptized because water baptism is something you need to do when you receive Christ. You are making, uh, you know, there's, there's different baptisms in the Bible. There's the water baptism, baptism into Christ, and the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Three different ones. But you need to be water baptized because you are making a statement to the church and to the world that the old man died and now I've come up out of the water and I'm living. I dedicate myself to live differently for Jesus, right? So he's baptizing these people. Some of them are street people, you know, rough people. And he said, I've been baptizing these people before. And he said, I've been tempted just to go ahead and, and leave them under and just send them to heaven right now. Because I know what they're going to face in life. Because now that you get saved, here's the deal. Now the devil, he's going to come against you either way. But he's going to come at you because now you're a threat to his kingdom. You understand that? Because he, here's the thing about us being saved. You know, God just doesn't want to save you and then take you to heaven right away. No. Now, that'd be okay, you know. I mean, because really the Bible says we really aren't citizens of this planet anymore. We belong to Jesus now. And he belongs to us. And our, uh, and, and our destiny is heaven, which also we're going to come back to the earth and rule and reign and for a thousand years after the rapture of the church and all those things happen. But... Uh, but my point is that, that we really don't belong here, yet you are here for a great purpose. And this purpose will really define how you spend eternity by your obedience to do what God's told you to do. God has called you into this life to make a difference. We are supposed to, to do this thing called taking the kingdom to the world and changing things around us, beginning with you in your family, in your marriage, and raising your kids. It's an awesome thing. God's called us to be kingdom builders. And now I'd like to introduce my wife to come up and talk about this a little bit. Come on up, honey. Uh, is there a mic that we need to grab for her, this one? Uh, isn't she pretty? Uh you know, uh, I got to tell you, we were going through security today at the airport, and she went through before me. And so, I, I, you know, you got all your stuff going through there, and, and, the, and, and the guy's looking at my, uh, at my passport, and he said, you know, when you're 75 years old, you can, you can go through a, a special security line. And I looked at him and said, you think I'm 75 years old? And I just thought, he didn't say that to Trudy. He said that to me, because she's pretty. So preach to them, baby. Okay. Um, I've been, I don't know, I've just been on a journey the last few months and uh, just really thinking about God's people and where we are in, in the timeline with Jesus. And you know, the scripture in Isaiah talks about that God knows the end from the beginning. And sometimes we, we think about that scripture and we're thinking about he knows the end from the beginning in our life. But he knows the end from the beginning of the whole thing. From before we were ever created, he had us on his heart. And that's why he created the earth. And he wanted to, and, and you know, even Jesus said this. He said, 
the disciples, they said, how do you want to, how are we supposed to pray? And Jesus said, pray like this. Like, how, uh, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. First thing in our life, and the top thing in our life, is to hallow God our Father. God our Father. He is worthy of all of our praise, all of our honor, and our whole life. But then he said this. He said, thy kingdom come, about the Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth like it is in heaven. And what God wanted was, he said, I've got this kingdom here that I I rule and reign in heaven, but I'm going to make an earth, and I'm going to build a kingdom there, and I'm going to build a family, and they're going to be my ruler of that domain. And so he created a man, and he created, he created um, Adam first, and, and we know the story. But there's, there's a lot of reasons why God does everything that he does. Sometimes we can read the Bible and we just read it randomly. But everything in it, every word, every jot, every tittle has meaning. Every bit of it is powerful and revelatory. And everything he did was in perfect wisdom and harmony. And there's no death in any of it. The word of God is alive and quickens us every time we read it. If we read it a thousand times while we're on the earth or more, it will always be alive. But he, he made Adam. But it's, it's funny because he didn't make Eve right at the same time. But I, I believe there was a reason for that. He made Adam first because in this kingdom he wanted to build, he wanted a, a leader and he wanted Adam to be, he wanted to spend some time with Adam, I believe, after he created him in this, this little, what they call the Garden of Eden. It was just a small part of the earth. It didn't cover the whole earth. But it was a prototype of how it was supposed to look. And God put him there, and he said, I'm going to teach you. And the first, you know, it said, we've talked about how God gave him a job. But his first job was to become God's son, learn his father's ways, and worship him. And, and guys, that is your first assignment in life. Your first assignment by your father God is that you learn his ways and you worship him. And when you're a worshiper of God, you become the best leader you could possibly be. And so he spent time with Adam and he, he, he said, I want you to, uh, to, to walk with me and talk with me. And I'm going to teach you how, because, you know, the Garden of Eden, actually what it means is the, the hedged-in place of eternal life or the hedged-in place of his presence. That's what it meant. It was a protected place that God had made to show men what, what life was supposed to look like here. And if you walked with him, that's how it was going to look for you. And outside of that garden, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, like inside the garden. You know, just... Not getting political here, but God likes walls. Okay, that's all I'll say. Anyway, um, He's always built walls. <laughs> always has. Nehemiah built a wall. Check the Bible out. Keeps good things in and bad things out. That was a rhyme, wasn't it? That was pretty good. But He wanted to train His son, and and the first thing He did with Adam was He gave him His purpose. He gave him his purpose. And in our marriages, one of the things that I don't think we consider is that when you got together, it wasn't just so you two could have a little white house and a picket fence and, and live happily ever after. There was a purpose in you two getting together. And a lot of people never find that purpose. They never blend. They never find out why the two of you got together. Because... There, the whole reason that we are here is to build the kingdom of God and to be a blessing to people. Our lives, our marriages, our families are to be a blessing to people. That's what we were put here for. And thank God for Jesus. You know, Adam and Eve, they didn't, they didn't do it right. They didn't obey what God told them to do. One little simple rule. <laughs> Don't touch that tree. Don't touch that tree. Or, 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 yeah, I'm sorry. Don't eat that tree. Leave it alone. That's, that, and you know what it really meant? It's, 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 it's a symbol of a lot of things. I think it's a symbol of the tithe. But I think it's also a symbol of this is the world's way too. And I want you to do it my way. 
and this is mine, and you just obey what I tell you, and you're going to be good. But, but what Eve did was she started looking at that tree, and she started thinking, maybe there is a better way. Maybe, maybe, maybe God, you know, that's what Satan said. Did God really say that? And so she starts questioning the, the God, the Father that created them. And the moment they did, it, it, and then Adam went with her, it, it took them down. And, you know, when the scripture says the, king, the kingdom uh, suffered violence, that's when it suffered violence right there. It fell. But then, thank God for Jesus, because he came back and reestablished that place and that purpose, and that's why we're here now. And when you get born again, and when you make Jesus the Lord of your life, then your purpose has been reestablished. And our purpose in this earth is to continue to fight and know what's ours in Christ and to fight for our families. You know, in Nehemiah, it says, fight for your families. Fight for your brothers and sisters. Fight. There is a fight of faith. There is a fight, but it's worth it because we're the ones that have the power. We're the ones that have the authority. We're the ones that have the keys to the kingdom that Jesus went and and. and and gave his life for to get, to give back to us, so we could go back to that place where we're kingdom rulers, and we rule and reign in this earth and have dominion. And that's what God wants for our families. He wa- and you need to think about this. We get so familiar with the things of God that we forget that we have a divine purpose for being here. And God never forgets that purpose because you're his children. And no matter what you go through or how many times you stumble and fall, you get back up, you still have a purpose that God put in you. And let me just say this to you tonight. There will never be another person on this earth like you, ever. And all the millions and billions that have been created, there will never be another one like you with the purpose that you were put here for. You have a gift that was given to this generation, to this time that you have on earth. You were given a gift by which to bless and be a a blessing to the kingdom of God and build the kingdom of God. And I don't care who you are or what you've done or where you've been, you have a place that God has given you and a gifting that no other person has on this earth. And And you're responsible for that. And you've got this little window of time, a little life, that he's given you in that big, long, him knowing the end from the beginning, right in the middle of all of that is this little space of time that he gave to you to be on this earth to make a difference for the kingdom of God. Yeah. So that's what you're called to do. It's a high calling. It's a big deal. That's why the devil will fight you. And he will come against you hard because he wants to derail you off your purpose. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at a few scriptures tonight. We're talking about the legality of the battle. And when you look at the Bible, a lot of the things and the battles we face, they're likened unto trials or we could say court cases or legal proceedings. And uh, a lot of the, the, the rhetoric in the Bible speaks to that. But, uh, in fact, let's read this. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I'm reading from the New, New King James. It says, there's no temptation. That word temptation means a trial. A trial is a legal term, right? We get, uh, w- there's a criminal case where you're accused of doing something criminal. So there's, there's a criminal trial, but there's also uh, other kind of trials where you'll be sued, maybe. And, uh, and these things are, are called trials. The Bible uses this word a lot. There is no temptation or trial that is overtaking you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted or tried. There's that word again. Beyond what you are able. But with the trial, the temptation will also make the way of escape. Hallelujah. That you may be able to bear it. So God's saying, whatever you're going through, here's what the devil does. He tries to tell you what you're going through. Nobody's ever faced anything anything like this before. This is unique. This is something, I don't even know how God's going to solve this. But the Bible said, no, no, somebody's been through it. It's common. Everybody say common. common. That means somebody's been in it before. And God says he'll give you a way of escape in the middle of it. 
I like to say it this way. If you're in it, you can win it. If you're willing to do some things. So we're going to look at some... Uh, some legality about trials tonight. We're going to look at some terminology. And, and I'm going to give you seven particular. I'm going to do some teaching tonight, okay? So get ready to look up some scripture, make some notes. Uh, how many note takers do we have here tonight? All right? Okay, everybody else, you need to take notes, okay? Everybody needs to be a note taker. This is good because you remember, remember this later. Um, we're going to look at some court terminology. I'm going to give you seven court terminologies that it's important to understand. Uh, and here they are. Number one, you've got to understand the judge in a court case. The judge. Number two is the plaintiff or the prosecution, the prosecutor in a, in a court case or a civil case. Number three, you have to understand the defendant. All right? Number four, you need to understand what it means to have a summary judgment. A summary judgment. S-U-M-M-A-R-Y. Summary judgment. Number five... The defense attorney. Very important. Number six, you got to learn the, the difference in circumstantial evidence. And then number seven, superior evidence. You got all that? Number one, the judge. Number two, the plaintiff or the prosecutor. Number three, the defendant. Number four, summary judgment. Number five, defense attorney. Number six, circumstantial evidence. Number seven, superior evidence. Number one, let's talk about the judge. Everything rests on the judge. What does the judge represent? Well, this would be God, okay? God is the judge. God is in charge. And when it comes to being a judge, God is totally fair and totally legal. Right. In fact, a couple of scriptures, Psalms 9-8. Can you guys go here pretty quick on the computer? Or are you looking these up for me? Uh, I'm reading from the New King James, Psalms 9-8. says this about God. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and He shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. God is totally right, totally down the line. Everybody say, God is perfect. God is perfect. And when it comes to being a judge, He is perfect in all of His judgments. Psalm 75, verse 7 says this about God. Psalm 75, verse 7. Flip through your Bible. If you've got a device, you can find it quickly. Uh, it says this, But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. God is a perfect judge. God's dealings are always totally balanced, and His dealings are always totally just. But I'm going to give you an oxymoron here, okay? It's a great contrast. Although God is totally impartial in His judgments, in the same way He's totally partial. <laughs> Yeah, he's totally impartial, but he's also totally partial as a judge. What do you mean? Look at Psalm 68, verse 5. And I'm going to read from the King James. It speaks to this. It says, that This is God. He is a father of the fatherless, and a judge of the widow is God in his holy habitation. So here's the balance with God's judgment. Yes, God is a judge, but it also says he is a father. And if He is your Father, and this is a big if, because this is not everybody, okay? See, there's coming a day, there's going to be a final judgment. And there will be, in fact, there's really two judgments spoken of in the Bible. There's the great white throne judgment, and then there's the, the judgment seat of the Lamb, all right? The first one, the great white, white throne judgment, you don't want to be at that one. Because that's where God will judge the world, and there will be total judgment, total recompense. I mean, you know, you look at the world, and anybody ever watch the news, and you get so upset at what's going on. And you think, oh my goodness. I just, you know, we long for in our heart justice. I think, don't we? We want things to be right. The great white throne judgment is a judgment of the world. You want to be at the judgment seat of the Lamb. That means you... See, that, that's whenever Jesus is there. You're going to meet Him eye to eye. And you're going to give an account for the way you handle yourself on the earth. Now, first of all, whenever you're at the judgment seat of the Lamb, you're going to get very, very happy. Can you imagine? I mean, you, the, the day comes and you're there at the judgment... And you made heaven. And do you understand this? Heaven is eternal. I mean, this is better than any test you ever pass. You're going to be going, yes, yes, I made it. What can you imagine? Dancing, jumping up and down. So you're going to be happy. But then there will come a time that you may not be so happy. 
Because somehow God's going to, I don't know if he's got it on video. I don't know if it's probably better than DVD. It's probably a really good picture, whatever. But somehow he's going to play your life back to you. And you're going to give an account. In fact, Jesus said for every idle word, you're going to give an account in the day of judgment. Okay, then. It's pretty serious, right? So, God, yes, He is a judge of finality. But if you know Him, <laughs> He is also a total father to you. Yeah. It's kind of like this. Let me put it this way. I have kids. And my son is a pastor in Oklahoma City. He, he started a church there three years ago. And I'm happy to report to you tonight, church is doing really well. They're running like 500 people in three years. I mean, they're reaching people. People are getting saved. They have great worship. People are getting filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, uh, Trudy and I moved from Tulsa after we've been in Tulsa, Oklahoma for many years, over 30 years. We moved to Oklahoma City to be a part of the church. We make, make this our base of operation. We still travel. But I'm what's called the church, and my son asked me to, to be an apostolic elder in the church. So I am responsible to God for decisions that are made. I mean, I'm not the pastor. This is, he's a pastor of the church. He's in charge. But for particular judgments, he comes to me and asks my advice. And he has a board of elders, but he calls me like, you know, a separate elder. I'm apostolic elder. I sound a pretty big deal, don't I? <laughs> so I, I'm responsible to God for how I handle this, right? Even to the point that I have to choose, choose truth over favoring my son. But I'm also a father. And when it comes to my son, it's my son. There's preferential treatment. It's preferential feelings because he's mine. Right? He'll always be mine. There's boundaries, of course, that I can't cross. But that's my boy. And one side of me, I'm going to do right. But the other side of me is you come against my son. You got to deal with me. You follow what I'm saying? That's God's attitude toward you tonight. Amen. That's how He feels about you. You are His son. You are, you are His daughter. So He is the judge, but He is your Father when you know Him. Amen. Isn't that awesome? Number two, let's talk about the plaintiff or the prosecutor. This would represent the devil. Satan is the prosecutor. He is the one that accuses. In fact, uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, let's look at this. The enemy always, you know, it's never the uh, defendant who initiates a lawsuit, right? It's always the plaintiff or the prosecuting attorney. There is a plaintiff that comes and says, and he is the accuser. In fact, let's read about it. Uh, Revelation 12.10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. This is at the end when all these judgments are happening in the, at the end of the great tribulation. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God. It's another, it's a court term, right? The accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Aren't you so glad that there's a day coming and the devil is going down? But now he is your accuser. And he comes even to, to God and accuses you all the time. And let me tell you something about this prosecutor. He is meaner and hates you more than you can ever imagine. In fact, turn to Psalm 109. Everybody, everybody tracking with me? We're talking about uh, the legality of the battle that you're in tonight. And you need to understand these legalities because they will determine your outcome. Psalm 109. This is David, and David is, is being pursued by Saul, right? And David, the one thing I love about the Psalms is David would get before God and he would pour his heart out. And uh, he would tell God everything he's feeling. And here's the thing about David. David was not a perfect man, right? David made some mistakes. David was an adulterer. He missed it pretty bad. David was a murderer in that adultery. And then David was a liar and, a, and, a, and concealed the way it happened. He went through a rough time. And he was away from God during that time. And yet, God said of David that David, I have chosen David. Because he's a man after my own heart. 
Here's what I think God's saying about David. I don't think he's saying he was perfect because nobody is. But God's saying, and David was like this, whenever he was confronted with his sin, he would always repent. And he was always come running back to God. He was a man after chasing God's heart. That's a good way to say it, right? So David is talking to the Lord because he's being pursued and it's not right. And he's talking about the, the attitude of his pursuer. And really when you read this, this is the attitude of the devil against you. So let's begin reading in verse 6. I'm going to pick it up there. I'm going to read from the New Living if you have that, guys. New Living Testament. And here's what David's uh, saying. He says, they say, or David's saying, this is what they're saying about me. Get an evil person to turn against him. Send an accuser to bring him to trial. We're talking about trials. When his case comes up for judgment, let him be pronounced guilty. Count his prayers as sin. Let his years be few. Let someone else take his position. May his children become fatherless and his wife a widow. Or in other words, the devil saying, saying this, Kill him, God. Get him. May his children wander as beggars and be driven from their ruined homes. This dude is mean and nasty and ugly and he hates you. May creditors seize his entire estate. He wants to take your, your marriage down. He wants to take your kids down. He wants to ruin them. He wants to ruin your money. He wants to ruin your legacy. And strangers take all he has earned. Let no one be kind to him. Let no one pity his fatherless children. May all his offsprings die. May his family name be blotted out in a single generation. May the Lord never forget the sins of his fathers. May his mother's sins never be erased from the record. May the Lord always remember these sins and may his name disappear from human memory. Here's what I want to say to you tonight, my friends. The devil hates you more than you can imagine. And he is serious about taking you down. The Bible said he does not come but for to steal, kill, and destroy. Right. He wants to take you out. He'd kill you tonight if he could. Why doesn't he? We'll find out. So we understand about the enemy, the prosecuting attorney, the prosecutor, right? What about the, the defendant? Well, that's you and me. We are the brethren that are being accused, right? And here's the point to remember, and I've already said this. The defendant never starts the trial. It's always the, the plaint or the, the, uh, the defense that comes after the, that comes after you. See, we don't walk up to the devil and, and call him out. Uh, say, "Come on, devil, let's just get it on right now. You can't do that, right? Lawsuits are initiated by a prosecutor or the accuser, and it's like this. Satan is like an ambulance chaser. He attacks. He wants to come against you. He initiates the trial with his accusations. And uh, you have to understand that's the way he operates, but you are the defendant. Now let's talk about number four, the summary judgment. What does that mean? A summary judgment is this. If you don't show up to court and contest the accusation made against you, a judgment can be made against you called a summary judgment, which means you are guilty because you didn't show up. Wow. If you don't state that there are important facts that dispute the case against you, you lose automatically here's the deal you can be guilty and lose but you can also be innocent and lose because you didn't fight it you gotta fight it here's the deal when you get attacked you gotta fight you gotta fight now here's the deal as Christians whenever we know Jesus our nature is love and to be sweet and we're supposed to be sweet right but here's what you gotta understand you can't be sweet with the devil you got to understand, he is after you, and I'm going to have to stand against him, and I'm going to have to learn to recognize him and take this very seriously. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. I know I'm turning to a lot of scriptures. Am I, am I, is everybody tracking with me, all right? Um, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. I'm reading again from the New Living. 1 Peter 5, 8 says this, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the opponent in a lawsuit is what that means. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him. Be strong in your faith. Remember that your Christian brothers and sisters all over the world are going through the same kind of suffering you are. He hits everybody. He comes 
He just comes. And you've got to get serious and sober about this. That's what this is talking about. Now, number five, we're going to talk about the defense attorney. And we're going to get some good stuff. You ready? Because y'all are being real quiet and serious right now. And that's okay. The, the defense attorney, what does that mean? This is a legal representative that is schooled in the intricacies of law and is a representative for somebody else. And here's the good news for you tonight. You don't have to do this alone. Amen. You have representation to help you. You can have legal counsel. And this counsel is better than anybody like lawyer shows. You know, there's an old one that I watched when I was growing up is Perry Mason. Anybody ever watch old Perry Mason? Yeah. Da 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 remember that? Yeah. Perry Mason, you know, every week, every week there's a weird case coming along. And but Perry Mason, you know he never lost one case. I mean, you talk about a super lawyer. I love lawyer stuff. You ever seen that show, uh, that movie, A Few Good Men? You know what I'm talking about? Tom Cruise. This is, what's that, 20 years old now? Yeah, I'm dating myself. Seems like it wasn't that long ago. Uh, but, you know, it's a legal movie. And, and Tom Cruise is a good guy. He's a good, good attorney defending these guys. And Jack Nicholson's a bad guy. The truth, you can't handle the truth. Remember that line? Classic stuff. He's better than, your attorney is better than Perry Mason. Amen. He's better than Tom Cruise and a few good men. In fact, your attorney, your representatives, you have multiple help. Go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. This is about to get really good. This is going to get really cool. You ready? 1 John 2, 1. I'm reading now from the New King James. I love this. It says this, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, I don't want you to look at all this. The advocate here is the Greek word parakletos. Parakletos. And here's what it means. It means a counsel for the defense. Or we could say it this way, a legal assistant. This is talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is there to help you all the time. And then look who else you have. With the Father. The Father is there. Remember, He's the judge. But you're his child. He's just looking for a way to get you out of this. And then you also have this one. And hallelujah. We sang about it tonight. Because of the blood. I like this church sings about the blood. There's power in the blood. You talk about the blood, sing about the blood. You are reminding the devil of something he does not want to remember. And it says he is Jesus Christ. It doesn't just say Jesus Christ. It says the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the one who is right. He never missed it. And he paid the price for you. See, it's like, here's what you got. You got like Jesus as the lead attorney. Uh, You got uh, the Holy Spirit is like the paralegal. I mean, Jesus is there with the Word helping you out. The Holy Spirit is there, and he's a comforter. I mean, Jesus is fighting for you, and then the Holy Spirit says, you're going through things. I want to help you. Because that's all he does. He wants to help you and comfort you. He wants to give you aid and assistance. He feels the things you're going through. That's the Holy Spirit. And then God the Father's on the throne saying, come on, son, you can do this under his breath. He's got to be legal, but he's for you. He's for you. Hallelujah. Use all. Amen. We need to use all of them. See, you know, what, but here's the difference in, in just like you know, a, a, an attorney in, in court or on a TV show and you and me. In court, you rely on your attorney totally. He's done all the study. He's passed the exams. He studied the law. But it doesn't work like that in our trial. You have to be the one. Now, He's there to help you. And He is the law. Jesus is the Word made flesh, right? But you have to learn the words you say. You've got to learn the law. What am I saying? You've got to dig in the book yourself. You, you lean on Jesus. You lean on the helper you have. But in a spiritual trial, you've got to go to school. This is why you come to church. My brother and sister, you've got to learn some things. Pastor John and Carla can't do it all for you. You've got to get into the book and dig into the book. My my life was changed in 1975. Trudy and I are kids. We're living in Fort Worth, Texas. I went to church one night. It was a Wednesday night, and we had a guy coming to our church. It's 1975. Some of you may have heard of him. His name was Dick Mills. Anybody ever heard of Dick Mills? You guys heard of Dick Mills? I didn't know of Dick Mills. He was older even then. He's, he's in heaven now. But Dick Mills had an unusual ministry. 
And uh, our church was, I don't know, it was probably about 500 people. And I'm just a kid. I'm, I'm, I know I'm called into ministry. I'm learning things. You know, I'm playing the drums in church. I'm on a praise and worship team. I'm doing some visitation pastoral work. And that was my job. But, but Dick Mills came and he had this unusual ministry. He would prophesy to people. And at the end of his services, he'd teach a little bit. But then he'd say, everybody here that wants a word tonight, come on up. Which I thought when I heard that, I thought, that's kind of weird. He'd just give anybody a word. But here's how he gave you a word. He would give you scriptures. And different scriptures would come to him. And he would say, I believe the Lord's telling me this for you. And he would give them particular scriptures. And I came up that night. And uh, he looks at me and he, and for a minute. And then he said, okay, here's what I got for you. I'm, he gave me five scriptures. Let me give you a couple of them. I wrote them down. I've never, never let go of them. That's 1975. He gave me this scripture. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. About the word. 2 Timothy 2.15. He just rattled these. They just came out of his spirit. I think he had the Bible memorized. He had studied. Right? He said, Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Psalm 119 verse 1. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Everything he gave me. Five scriptures. I won't read them all. But they were all about the word. Me getting in the word. Word getting in me. And then that God wanted to use me to do signs and wonders. And he got done. He looked at me and he said, Young man, I don't know who you are. But you've got a big work ahead of you. Yeah. And Trudy wasn't there that night. But that rocked my life. In this way, I got... It bore such witness because I knew it was called. But then I thought, I don't know the Bible like I should. And I began to dig in. And here's the way I did it. I would read the Bible every morning. I'd get up and read the Bible. And I'd ask God to quicken a scripture to me. And I would write it down on a, on a little card because I drove a lot in my job. And I would memorize that scripture. And every day I'd memorize a different scripture. And I'd think on it all day. I'd turn the radio off. And I, I, and I got into the Word and I began to say it and meditate on it. Not just memorize it, but I think on it. What does that mean? And, and as I began to do that, the Holy Spirit began to unveil things to me. And I began to see things. And here's the thing about you get in the Word, it'll make you more hungry for the Word. And I, the more I learned, the more hungry I got. And, and I learned, this is true. This thing is alive. I remember laying in bed at night and I was thinking on a scripture and I just thought, wow, and I don't know how to say it other than I just thought, this is so awesome. It's alive and it's talking to me and, and it got in me. Am I, are you tracking with me? Folks, you got to get the Word in you. You have to get the Word in you. Let's talk about the last two. First, circumstantial evidence. The devil wants to convict you with circumstantial evidence. In other words, circumstances that come against you is what he's trying to use to take you down. Circumstances like sickness and disease, financial difficulty, relationship issues, any kind of sexual sin, temptation, pornography, any kind of sexual sin, alcoholism. I had to deal with that one strong. My dad was an alcoholic. I hated it growing up when I watched him. And lo and behold, I left home, or, or hadn't left home. Took my first drink at 17. By the time Trudy and I are married, at, I'm 19, she's 17. We didn't get married in 1917. I was 19. <laughs> Clarify that. She was 17. I'm drinking every day. I was drinking every day, wasn't I, babe? And I hated it. But I, it's, I couldn't seem to stop it. The Bible talks about you do things you hate. That's the enemy. Drug addiction, family dysfunction. Abandonment, no father, no mother, divorce, anything, whatever you're facing, whatever you face tonight, these are evidence that the enemy brings against you. All these things are real. But there is, the last one I want to talk about, superior evidence to the circumstantial evidence. Maybe the circumstances are true. Maybe there is something going on in your body. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe, maybe you have arthritis or, or rheumatoid arthritis. Maybe whatever. Maybe you and your wife, you can't get along. And you're just hitting a stalemate. These are all facts and these are evidence. And they stack up against you, right? But there is superior evidence to circumstantial evidence.
Superior evidence trumps circumstantial evidence. Superior, the superior evidence we have is the Word of God. And we have the Gospel. Trudy talked about it. Je what Jesus did is the Gospel. Do you know the Gospel is called good news, right? But here's a, here's a more, this was an older definition. We've, I don't know where we found this. I wrote it down years ago. But, I, but Gospel actually means this. Good news from the battlefield. Isn't that cool? And it goes on and says, here's the good news. The war is over. The battle has been won. The kingdom is secure. Isn't that cool? The battle, the war is over. The battle has been won. The kingdom is secure. When the evidence is stacked against you in God's court, the scripture is superior evidence that trumps the circumstantial evidence that is being presented against you. Hallelujah! Somebody all say hallelujah real loud. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says this, 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture. Everybody say Scripture. It's the Word of God. It's in your Bible. It's on your tablet, on the app you have. It's, it, is, it is the Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, profitable for doctrine, for reproof. The Greek word for reproof here is this word, elegkos, E-L-E-G-C-H-O-S. I probably butchered that because I'm not a Greek scholar, okay? But that's the way it's spelled. But here's what it means. Reproof means evidence. Amen. The Word of God is evidence for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But you have to believe it. And you have to use it. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Go there quickly. Everybody tracking with me? I'm going, I'm going a lot of Scripture, aren't I? You all right with this? Yep. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence. Yeah. It's evidence. What is? Your faith. So you have to provide evidence that trumps the evidence prevented against you. You know, it's like this. The evidence may say that you are a sinner. Right? Or you people say this. Well, you know, Brother Ken, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. That's the wrong evidence. That you may have been a sinner, but you got saved by grace. And now 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this about you. It doesn't say you're an old sinner. You cannot find in the Bible where it says you're an old sinner saved by grace. That's not you. Here's who you are. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that would be me and you. If we're in Christ, we're a new creature. Old things have passed away. How many old things? All of them. I'm doing some good preaching right here. All things, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You're not just righteous, made righteous. You are righteous. Amen. Amen. But I can't say that, Brother Kent. Well, God said that about you. Yes. Why don't you start saying it about yourself? Glory, that's right. Brother Kent, you don't understand. I am a Christian. But the reason I'm in what I am in in this trial, I did something. I sinned. I'm guilty. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. Maybe you are as guilty as sin. But here's the deal. We all miss it from time to time. Some, some of our misses are more serious than others. But if you can, but if the, if the, you know, that's what the devil will beat you up with. Yeah, you're righteous, but you did this. And that may be true. But here's what you need to do if that be true throw yourself on the mercy of the courts. Amen. Your honor, I throw myself on the mercy of the court. And I got a scripture for you. Go back to 2 John 2 1. Let me emphasize something else. We read this once before. I'm building a case here, I'm going somewhere, okay? First so John 2, 1, My little children, these things I write unto you, that you sin not. The will of God is that you don't sin. But He knows you and me. If any, but He says, But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, our advocate. Here's the deal. Your attorney can get it off your record if you run to Him. And if you'll talk to him and get serious about it, another scripture, go to Isaiah 43, 25. Now, I hope you're writing these down. Are you writing these down? Everybody's taking notes tonight, right? If you are a note taker, you're taking notes. I know you always do. But you're not note takers because you need to go back over this. And we're about to read something that's so cool. Isaiah 43, 25. 
This is God talking. <laughs> and I like NLT. I'm reading New Living. And here's what he says. I, this is God. Yes, I alone is God. He's telling you this. I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake. And I will never think of them again. Let us review the situation together. And you can present your case to prove your innocence. The New King James says, state your case that you may be acquitted. Court terms that you may be acquitted. Uh, uh, KJV, uh, state your case that you may be, you may be acquitted. Uh, no, this is King James. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. When you're pleading, God, Jesus is pleading with you. Declare you that you may be justified, declared not guilty. So you plead together with Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit. He stands with you. When you repent, it's gone. You don't, and then you don't go remind God of it. It's gone. You leave it there, right? And you get past it. He said he'll plead together with you. God will stand with you and help. This is not based on you. It's based on what he did for you. God wants to help us through little battles, through severe battles. 1987. I was coming home from a meeting. I'm going to close with this. That's all the notes you need to take. I'm coming home from a meeting, and, and I played a character on, the, on a TV show called The Gospel Bill Show. Some of you may not know this. It was a kid's TV show back in the 80s. Uh, I came here, and, and I did my character. I, I played a character named Nicodemus. I was a deputy marshal in Dragos, USA. And in the TV show, we, we taught little kids the Bible. We got little kids saved, filled with the Holy Spirit. It was awesome. Show went all over the world back in the 80s. Uh, we'd go to meetings, go to churches, because we traveled. We'd do TV show. We'd also travel. Willie George produced a kid's curriculum. And uh, we'd go to churches, and so many people would show up, we'd have to do two or three services. We'd pack the place out, because it's very popular all over the country, especially on the East Coast. Because there was a time that every morning we were on, on the old T, uh, CBN network. So with that, I would go out and do my own meetings. I came here and did one, or more, probably more than one. Nicodemus rallies where families would come, and I would do my character, and, and we'd have a service for little kids, but we wanted the moms and dads to be there too so they could see the importance of kids' ministry. The, 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 the strongest thing that I do in, in all my life, and I'll be marked for this forever, is me talking about the importance of little kids. Me going to churches and preaching about how important it is to have kids' ministry. It's not babysitting. That's important ministry. It's ministry. Because all these little kids grow up and turn into real people. And they need Jesus. So I'm out doing it. And it was hard work. But I was a young guy. You know, I'd go out and I'd put on a cowboy outfit, get in a dog costume, do all these things. And so I've been out and, I, and I've been doing meetings. And I was, I was alone. I, I may have had somebody with me. I don't remember. But I know it was my meeting. But I came home. Trudy picked me up at the airport one night. And, and I saw her and I, she didn't look good. And she's sick. I could tell. I said, you all right? She said, yeah. She said, I've been wallpapering and, and I just haven't been feeling well. And, and she had also not been eating. She was on a diet. And she was drinking a lot of coffee, Right. And she was doing all this intricate wallpapering in her house. And she was sick. And I said, well, did you go to the doctor? She said, yeah. He said, I had some kind of virus. I'll be, I'll be all right. I said, okay. So we go home. Well, in the night, she wakes me up. And she was like shaking. And I thought, what is, what's going on? She was cold. And she couldn't get warm. So I went and got a bunch of covers and put on her. And she, but she's trembling and shaking. So I called the emergency room. It's like 3 o'clock in the morning. And... Uh, and I told her, this, told her the situation. They said, oh, you know, there's a flu or something going around. She's probably got that. Just take her to the doctor in the morning. So we didn't do anything that night. I took her in the morning. When I got up in the morning, though, I, I felt urgency. I thought, she's sick. Something's wrong. So we took her to the doctor. And she'd been to this doctor. And the doctor looked at her again and did a blood test, right? And he, I remember I can see his eyes today. Because he came out of the office and I could see fear in his eyes. And he told me, he said, you better get her to the hospital. He said, I've made preparation. And I thought, huh, he's concerned. And then I thought, you know, he diagnosed and he misdiagnosed apparently. Because he said she has a kidney uh, infection. But, it's, you know, it's pretty serious. And we need to take her to the hospital and get her in the hospital, get her on some IVs. So I took her. She, kidney infection, I don't, I'm not a doctor. I did, you know, that didn't ring a bell with me. I thought, that's not that big a deal. So we go to the hospital, uh, 
And I'd been up late that night with her, and I had to take care of the kids. They were with us. I took her to the hospital. She was laying in the back of our little 1986 Toyota van. And they came out, wheeled her in. And so I got a friend of ours, the lady, if you know this character on the show, Lana Osborne, who played Miss Lana. And she came and watched Trudy, and I had to take the kids to somebody. And then I was going to go home and, and sleep a little bit because I was so tired. I'd been working, you know, and I came in late. And, uh, and I was asleep, and I, I was awakened, phone call, and it was Lana. And she said, Kenya, it's, it's probably 2 in the afternoon by now. She said, you need to get down here. She, she's pretty sick. She keeps throwing up. She can't keep anything down. And uh, so I came down, and, you know, she was pretty sick, but I'm still, it's kidney infection. I'm thinking, that's should be okay. It's not that big a deal. And so people would come see us. Lana left. Everybody's gone. It's about 10 o'clock at night. Doctor comes in the room. He checks her out, looks at her, and then he said, Mr. Blunt, I need to talk to you. So he took me aside to a room. He said, I want you to know that your wife has a very serious kidney infection, and this thing has gone, is it toxic is the right word? It's, it's, it's turned into blood poisoning. It's in her blood. Her blood is now getting toxic. And we're fighting this thing, but she's so weak, I don't know if she's going to make it through the night. Oh, wow. And, he, man, you could have knocked me over with a two-by-four. I, mean, I mean, with a toothpick. <laughs> Knock anybody over with a two-by-four. Because uh, <laughs> uh, I thought, well, how did, have you ever been in a place you think, how did I get here? And then I thought, this can't be happening to me. I, I need her. She, I, I'm 36 years old. We got two little kids. Uh, he's telling me she may not make it. And fear just came against me. And then I thought, I'm a Christian. How can this happen to a Christian? We serve God. I'm Nicodemus. <laughs> I want you to know when you get in a battle, yeah. in a trial, your pedigree won't do it. No. So everybody's gone because nobody thought it was that serious. And I'm with her in the hospital. And I had to go take the kids some clothes. So I took the chance to leave her for about 30 minutes, run to our house, grab some clothes, take them to the babysitter. And it was, it was in the fall. It was like, in fact, I'll tell you the date. It was October 29th. We lived in Tulsa. And the first cold front of the year had come through. And the wind was blowing out of the north. And in that house we lived in then, when the wind blew out of the north, you, the door sometimes would whistle. I'll never forget it. I, I walked in the door to go to my kids' rooms upstairs to get the, the clothes. And when I shut the door, uh, I'm reaching for the light switch, and it's dark, and it's quiet. And then I hear this through the door, right? And if I've ever heard the devil, I heard him. And he, I saw a picture. He said, you will never, she will never be in this house again. I saw myself at a funeral. I saw the casket. I saw my little kids crying. I saw the anguish and the heartache. And through gritted teeth, because I had some word in me, I said, we will return here to worship God. And it wasn't easy. It was hard. And I went back to the hospital, and I began to take my Bible. And i got to tell you, when I was doing it, it seemed so small because she's laying there and they tell me she's dying. But I got my Bible and I went to scriptures that I knew that I had studied. 1 Peter 2.24 says, With His stripes. He was made to be sin for us who knew no sin. By whose stripes? He was made to be sickness for us when we don't know healing. That's what that's saying. By whose stripes we were healed. You know what that says? That's a guarantee. In, in the mind of God, every sickness that comes against humanity was taken care of that night. But He just didn't take our sicknesses. He took our, our sin and our, our, our nastiness of humanity. And Jesus was scourged and He was beaten. And they put a crown of thorns on Him. Many believe that crown of thorns represented the curse that came on the earth at, at the time of Adam. When God told Adam, instead of you being blessed, you're going to have to fight thorns and thistles, right? And they put a crown of thorns on the head of Jesus. Everything He did was significant of what He took from me and you. His back was shredded. 
there's evidence I read before, and some there's some thinking, and sometimes we don't want to go there, but that the Jesus maybe the Romans were a very wickedly sexual society. That maybe even our Lord was molested by these Roman soldiers. We don't know that. It doesn't say that. But I know this. Whatever has happened to you, somehow, on that cross, He yes. took it. I don't know how. How could that be? How could 2,000 years ago, what Jesus did, work for us that night? Yeah. But somehow it began to work. It didn't look like it was working. I turned to Psalm 103. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all my iniquities. When the trials come, He forgives it. Who heals all, everybody say all, all, all my diseases. He is a healer of all of them. Yes. I'd say those words, and I'm telling you, it's like they were falling on the floor out of my mouth. I had no sense of a connection with heaven whatsoever. But I just stayed with it. Because this is a trial. And i got to win this thing. Yes. And I used the Word of God. And I'd walk around and then I'd pray in the Spirit. And I'm at a point, I don't even care what the nurses think. I'd be in there praying in the Spirit. And they'd walk in and they'd kind of look at me funny and then they'd leave quickly. Like, this guy's weird, but whatever. But I didn't care. Right. And so we get 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. I, find, I dozed off at about 5 o'clock in the morning. And I was in a pleather, orange pleather chair. Anybody know what pleather is? <laughs> and I'm in this pleather chair and I, and I dozed off. I was trying to stay awake. And I saw, all of a sudden, I hear, sorry, I hear this little voice. It's real weak. It's like, Kenny. Because she calls me Kenny. And it's Trudy. And she hadn't talked for hours. She was out of it. Kenny. And I ran over and said, hey, babe, hey, how are you? She said, I'm hungry. Could you get me some food? Food? Yes. I ran to the nurse. We need bacon, eggs. Come on. She's hungry. She's hungry. By, by the time I got back, she was sitting up in bed. And she was coming out of it. They brought in. She ate. She ate like, oh, three or four eggs, pound of bacon, loaf of bread. Not that much. But she ate. And now we're talking and it's, it was wonderful. You know what else is cool? It's my birthday. October 30th. And the doctor walked in. And he looked at, he did kind of like a double take. And he said, whoa, what happened to you? And we said, Jesus healed her. And do you know in the documentation of what happened, they, they had the records. In fact, the other doctor told me this. He said, you can look in the records. And they, have, they say, there's no medical reason she came out of this. It was a miracle. But here's the deal. I didn't do that. But I had a part to play. See, when you're on trial, when the trial comes, you've got to play your part. Because if you quit, and it makes me so sad that 50% of Christian marriages quit. And they reach a day, and they say, I quit. And people that in, their, in, in their finances with their kids, I quit, and I give up. Can't give up! Because it's you. You've got a part to play. Only God can do what He can do. You can't do that. You cannot heal a gnat. Uh, you understand that? But only you can do what you can do. And that's believe it. And stand against it. Because you are well able in Him. You are well able in Him. Whatever the deal is tonight. Whatever the trial. Whatever the case looks like. No matter how, how you messed it up. You come to Him, reason with Him. Get it right with God. You are well able to whip whatever it is that you're facing tonight. And that's what I came to tell you.